You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. I'm your host, Lisa Mueller. Today on the air, we're celebrating World Intellectual Property Day, observed every year on April 26. This global event highlights the critical role of IP in promoting creativity and innovation around the world. This year's theme focuses on celebrating the achievements of women in the field of innovation and creativity. Today, I'm excited to have as our guest, Laura Shopey, the founder and president of Fuantech LLC, a consulting firm specializing in technology transfer and intellectual property. Laura is also a passionate advocate for encouraging women and minorities to pursue careers in the STEM fields. With more than two decades of experience in technology transfer, Laura has provided valuable guidance to universities, government labs, corporations, and research institutions worldwide, helping them manage their intellectual property and technology transfer operations proactively, efficiently, and effectively. She is also a regular speaker on innovation and intellectual property topics and has been recognized for her contributions to the field by organizations such as the Autumn Foundation. Welcome, Laura. I'm so excited to have you here on the air. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. And Laura, can you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you first became interested in tech transfer and what inspired you to found FunTech? Sure. Um, so I actually started off in the defense industry. I was doing missile plume intelligence and then submarine combat system work. I had done my thesis in uh, wake technology. So uh, I was working in that field, working at GE, and we were kind of looking at the uh, algorithms that we were developing for wake detection for submarines and thinking, well, could other parts of GE use this? And it turned out that medical uh, devices within GE did have some potential for that. So we met with them and it was a fiasco. Um, <laughs> they, they talked in terms of, you know, just uh, tens of thousands of dollars to implement something. We talked in terms of hundreds of thousands and millions because we were in the defense industry and it took us years to modify code. They would do it in months. And so it fell apart and it didn't go anywhere. But it kind of started my whole interest in technology being used for other purposes. And I had never even heard of the word commercialization at that point. Um, and it also kind of fell at the same time that I was looking at where I was living. And I was up in Syracuse and it was snowing a lot and decided I wanted to move somewhere warmer. So uh, I ended up getting a job at a organization that was working for NASA and they were doing technology transfer and commercialization. So that was my second introduction to it, but it was what I wanted to be doing. I, I had really been fascinated by the idea at GE and also disappointed <laughs> that it didn't go where I thought it should have gone. So that's how it started. That's a really incredible journey. And I mean, it's led you to an amazing career. You've become a successful woman entrepreneur. And given that for other women who are looking to start their own businesses, what advice would you give to them? 
Oh, networking is so important. So when I started uh, Fuentech, I had actually worked in technology transfer again with NASA for uh, less than 10 years at that point, but had a vision for doing it differently than um, how I was doing it at the time. And I live in the Research Triangle Park area, and it turns out that it's a very small community. When you start talking to other people in the area about how do I start a business? How do I, you know, where do I get an accountant? Where do I get a lawyer? It's a very close-knit community and very helpful. Um, And so I talked to a lot of people. I asked a lot of questions. I took people to lunch a lot back in those days um, and just learned from others that had made mistakes, done it their way, and I was a sponge. And so I would really encourage uh, anybody, um, but especially women, to ask questions and absorb it, but then make your own path. So when I started Fuentech, I wanted, again, to do things differently. And so this was back in 2001, and the idea of a virtual company didn't exist, but that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I didn't want brick and mortar. I didn't want people to feel like they had to work so many hours. So thinking outside of the box is also something else I would encourage. Um, One other aspect, especially if you're in the the technology sector um, in innovation, I'd encourage looking at government contracts. Um, Because I have worked in government since I was 18, (laughs) it didn't scare me. Um, The idea of going after government contracts really was not nerve wracking. It is a wonderful source, SBIR funding, grant funding. It is a great source. And do not be scared and intimidated by the idea of going after government funding. Now, you mentioned you established Fuentech back in 2001. And, you know, it's even well known today that women founders face a lot of challenges. So I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges you faced as a woman founder? Sure. Um, So Actually, the bigger challenge I faced at that time was the idea that it was virtual. Uh, any organization that I went to to say, we can we can do this for you, they thought it was crazy. They're like, well, how are you going to control people if you can't see them? And how can you do this work if you guys aren't sitting together? So I, I really had to overcome that hurdle of saying, you're getting senior folks that can work independently and we're only working on the things that make sense for what our our technical capabilities are. So you're actually going to get higher quality. Um, But I will tell you early on, I attracted more women to this business than I did men. And that concerned me that when I started to have a booth at Autumn and things like that, that people would view us as women only because we were predominantly women. And and I think part of that was because of the flexibility of work. Um, And it allowed women who were very capable to have that balance that they needed. And so that's that's what um, originally attracted to us. And I worried about the dynamics, the the visual of it. And then I realized, why am I worried about this? If, If somebody doesn't want to work with a company that's predominantly women, we don't want to work with them. So stop worrying about it. We are what we are. And that was the end of of that concern. Um, And it really wasn't that big a deal. The the constraints I ran into about being a woman were much earlier in my career. Um, So when I worked with the Navy, when I worked with the Air Force, I was 
one in the room and I was also very young. (laughs) Yeah. So you had uh, kind of two things there that were challenging to deal with at that time. Yeah. But um, in tech transfer, at least as professionals, there are a lot of women in this industry. And so I have not felt that aspect of it. Um, from the inventorship perspective, that's different with the people that we deal with. Um, that, that's a different ballgame. And you're certainly ahead of the curve, weren't you, with a virtual company? Because little did we know, uh, working remotely and virtually, we're going to become a way of life in several years uh, after you founded your company. Yeah, when COVID started and everybody was freaking out, I was like, well, welcome to my world. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Now, in addition to all your work in tech transfer, you're a passionate advocate for encouraging women and minorities to pursue careers in STEM. Can you give us some ideas of some actions that companies and other organizations can take to help support this cause? Absolutely. Um, It's a pipeline issue. Huge pipeline issue. Yeah. Right. Um, so you need to start early. And and I've worked in the area of helping um, women and minorities primarily. I mean, kids in general, but I, I do try to focus my resources uh, primarily or my efforts primarily on um, minorities and women. You've got to get them early. Um, and if you don't start encouraging them to not be afraid of math and science by the time they are in sixth or seventh grade, it's too late. Um, And so one of the areas that I spend a lot of my energy on is uh, called FIRST Robotics. Um, And I'm the current chair of the FIRST North Carolina um, organization. And it has different components to it that start with young kids in elementary school and goes all the way through high school. Um, and it just breaks down those barriers of geekdom um, and of fear of just get your hands in there and get dirty, um, not just, you know, mechanically, but also with coding, with everything and encourages kids to do all aspects of it. Um, so I would encourage companies to look for those types of programs that are breaking down those barriers for kids younger, but follow it all the way through. And the more organized that program is, the the farther your dollar and your time go. Um, and be picky about it. I've, I've actually worked with a lot of different organizations and I try them out. And if they're, they need more of my time in getting them fixed and organized, I move on, <laughs> find somewhere else. Laura, today's World IP Day, and we are celebrating innovative and enterprising women all around the world. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about Funtech's work with small businesses. And I understand that Funtech provides SBIR, technical and business assistance to small businesses. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of this program for small businesses and how it helps them navigate the complex world of tech transfer and intellectual property? Yeah, the TABA program um, is somewhat new um, within the last three, four years, I think. Um, And it's an augmentation to the SBIR, STTR program. So small businesses, and I mentioned this before, that I really encourage um, new startups to to not be intimidated by government funding and and go after um, this kind of funding. SBIR is meant to be early stage um, innovation funding without diluting the company. 
So it's essentially a grant. Um, the TABA program is money on top of that. So in a phase one proposal that um, you can submit to a variety of different government agencies, they each have their own topic areas. They each have slightly different rules, but ballpark, a phase one funding for research activity is usually somewhere around $100,000, 60 to $100,000. On top of that, they can ask for TABA funding, which is an additional uh, up to $6,000, depending on the agency. And it's specifically meant to focus on what is the commercialization path for the technology. So SBIR has for many years been research, research, research. And there's some companies that are known as um, they turn the crank on SBIRs and they live off of just getting these SBIRs, but never take the technology to the next stage. And the government has really cracked down um, and wanted to see more productivity out of SBIRs. Um, actually, they've been saying this for 10 years, but they've, they've actually found ways to, to get closer to that. And the TABA program is one of those. And so um, if a company asks for TABA funding and they line up their TABA vendor, they get that additional $6,000 to pay the vendor to help analyze the market, to help them identify what is the path forward? What is our strategy? What IP should we be um, pursuing, which is, is your area, Lisa? Um, and then what companies maybe should we partner with or could be um, potential vendors for us afterwards? There's just such a variety of pathways available to these companies. Um, and they don't have the expertise to really look at them and they don't have the time to do the research and um, and analyze it. So this gives them that extra push it, it, and the information goes into their phase two proposal. So it part of their requirement now is that they have to have a commercialization plan. So the TABA phase one gives them the meat for that commercialization plan. And that not only helps give them a pathway, but it gives the government information to look at this and go, if we invest in phase two, which is now up to potentially a million dollars, depending on the agency, that's a whole lot more change. Um, if we're gonna invest in this, we wanna know that it's got potential. It, it, it's gonna go somewhere to benefit the US economy. Um, and so it gives them more information to make better decisions moving forward. And then there's also a phase two TABA, um, which can be up to $50,000. And that can be used to get a patent, um, to pay your patent attorney. It can be used for specific expertise. It can be used to actually um, market that technology and get those partnerships started so that at the end of your phase two SBIR funding, you are in much better shape to actually take the next steps for commercialization. That sounds like a fantastic program. And it's actually one that's new to me. I hadn't heard of the TABA program. So I think it's really great for small businesses to, to take advantage of. I hope they do. Now, Laura, for women who might be interested in pursuing a career in intellectual property or tech transfer, what skills and experiences do you think are most important for success in this field? So I'm not an attorney, so you might be able to answer the IP law aspect of it a little better than I, but um, in terms of working in the technology field, you need to get your check mark 
um, on the technical part first of um, doing a few years somewhere and, and ensuring that you have the, the technical chops because that will always be questioned. If you go straight out of getting your um, degree and then go into tech transfer, for example, without necessarily implementing the technology part of it, um, I think it'll be more challenging. I, I think you don't have the insights into what goes into technology development, what goes into um, program management and, and taking something from idea all the way through. And uh, I would also encourage um, them to work for somebody else. So don't, if, if you're more in the startup idea, you are playing with your own money when you go out. Um, and if you work for a company and learn on their dime, essentially, uh, if the bigger the company, the smaller your mistakes are. They, they don't have quite as big an impact on the bottom line, on, on people's livelihood and career. If you're in a very small company, you make a mistake, you're impacting everybody. Exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah, much more detrimental in a, a startup than it is in a, a very large company. Yeah. So I would encourage them to go work for somebody else and be a sponge, um, learn everything. When I was at GE, I took every management course I could get a hold of um, and learned about succession planning and learned about program management and learned about interviewing. Um, huge impact of, of my career path has been my ability to to interview and pull out salient points to make good decisions, um, not just in innovation, because that's a huge thing that we do is we interview people, but um, in hiring staff. It, it is amazing how little thought some people put into the process of hiring somebody, and it has a tremendous impact on your culture um, and your productivity. And so focusing in on how you talk to people, how you pull that information out. Um, I learned that at GE. That was one of the, the things I learned there. There was ethics training. There was every every kind of training you could think of. <laughs> yeah, that's the same thing. Big companies, big law firms offer continuous training on a whole host of issues, pay for you to go back to school, to continue learning. So it's a great place, like you said, to really get a lot of different experience and insights into things that you're not going to have probably the time or the resources to do in a startup. So I think that's some great advice. That and networks. When you first come out, you know nobody. <laughs> they don't know you. Um, and so building up your networks and who who can be a resource for you and that trust. Um, because you have to have good relationships with people in order to get good advice, um, get good connections. They have to believe that if they're going to share their network with you, you're going to give them value back for that or that you're not going to violate that trust. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about what companies and organizations can do to ensure that women and minorities have equal opportunities to succeed in STEM. And, you know, have you seen or, or do you have some thoughts on what companies and organizations can do to create a more inclusive workplace culture and support the career development of underrepresented groups? I mean, you, we just talked about some programming and educational opportunities, but are there some others that you can suggest? 
Yeah. And and I, frankly, I benefited from that. So at, at GE, again, I was in the defense industry. I was a woman. I'm also Hispanic. Um, they used to joke I was a four pointer. Um, <laughs> I was unique um, from that perspective. And they were, even though it was the 80s, they were actually very uh, progressive in the fact that they were looking for women and minorities to help move through um, and and escalate. So I I went up through the management chain very quickly and I, again, benefited from um, the fact that they were looking for those people. Um, that doesn't supplant capability. Like, I think the reason that I got the attention I did was because I was good at what I was doing. And so they, they kept looking for um, other opportunities to move me along. Um, you can't have one without the other. Uh, the other aspect that I think I've seen at companies that are successful at this is that they put the extra effort into looking for those people. So if your room is full of white men, then that's who is going to continue to get promoted. And we all look the same and we are all comfortable with each other. Um, but if you make an effort to go look for qualified people that look different than you do and bring them in, then you can create some of that diversity. But it takes effort because they're not easily going to show up at your door because your your network tends to be people that already look like you. <laughs> you've got to try a little harder. So, Laura, given that you've worked in the government and also in industry, um, what steps do you think companies and organizations can take to address issues of unconscious bias? So um, unconscious bias will always be there, as I'm sure you're, you're aware of, always. Um, and I think the best thing we can all do is to make it conscious. Absolutely. <laughs> recognize that's what's going on and, and bring it in the sun, sunlight. Um, so one of the things that uh, we, because we were virtual, I never saw a lot of the people that I hired. Um, and I would talk to them on the phone and unconscious bias, you can make some assumptions about, you know, male, female are probably pretty easy assumptions to make for most voices um, and their names possibly. But I had no idea what color their skin was or anything like that, um, because we didn't do cameras until COVID, uh, even though. Zoom and all those things existed. We rarely used cameras before then. Um, and because we were remote, I didn't meet a lot of these people um, ever. I've never been in the same room with them. And so anything companies can do to eliminate that aspect of the decision making that as soon as they see somebody it, it starts triggering certain decisions in their minds. Um, take names off of um, resumes and invention disclosures. So that that is something that we don't look at the names of the inventors as we're analyzing the, the first blush of what we look at until we have to set up the interview, um, because then you have to <laughs> look at the name and call them and all that. But we try not to, to have any thought as to is this man or woman, um, you know, what what is their ethnicity when we first look at it, because when you first read the technology is where you formulate your initial impression of do I think this is going to go forward or not? Um, and it's a much 
less impact after you've gotten that initial idea about the technology, which has nothing to do with the technologist. Um, and so, well, it does in terms of their ability later, but um, just for that first thought. So kind of projecting that into hiring practices, anything you can do through those first layers of weeding people in and out into piles of taking their names off of it. Do not look at pictures. Um, at some point, obviously, you do have to meet somebody and you want to look at them eye to eye. Um, but then the other aspect is be very conscious of your biases and and think them through. And, and back to the other point I made before of go the extra mile of looking for people that don't fit the norm that you've already got. Um, but are still highly qualified. Never drop that that thing. The, the affirmative action trope of, you know, it, it's elevating people that are not equal to. That's bullshit. I, I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, that no, just it, aggravates true. me to no end. Yeah. It aggravates me to no end because I worked hard and I don't think I would be necessarily in a different position if I were a man than a woman. Um so it certainly impacted uh, my career path because of some of the barriers that I went up against early on in my career. But I think my competency has nothing to do with my ethnicity or my sex. Laura, I wanted to go back and ask you about um, taking the inventor names off of invention disclosures, because that's a question the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee at Autumn gets quite regularly. Um, for offices that are looking to take names off of invention disclosures, do you have some suggestions in terms of how they can do that and maybe how to make it that it's not an overly labor-intensive kind of process? Yeah. Um, so the inventor names on when we're doing the analysis and, and setting up our reports, it's in there. It's training to say, don't look at it. OK, so um, that doesn't cost you much. No, to, it doesn't. To tell, to tell them, you know, don't even look at that. Skip right down and just start reading, reading what you're, you got to focus on. Um you know, electronically, it's not that hard if you're going to send somebody an invention disclosure, just delete it off of there. Um, and, and then, you know, PDFs can be edited and then send it on if you really wanted to, to do that. And most offices do have admin support that is taking in the invention disclosure and then sending it out to um, the tech managers. Now, part of how things are structured at um, many universities is that they they get assigned based on, well, this is that inventor. Um, and so you move forward. You can make a little bit of judgment call there. If you've got an inventor that you're working with a lot, hopefully you're past that bias. <laughs> you know, you know them, you know, they're capable. So it doesn't hurt in those circumstances because you already have an opinion and hopefully a good opinion if you've, you've done a lot of inventions with that particular person. It's really the one-offs and the new new folks that are coming in. It's encouraging their participation. Um, and the barrier is actually not as heavy once they've submitted the invention disclosure. I think the barrier is harder to get them to submit it. I think so also. Um, and do you have any thoughts on how we can overcome that barrier? Yeah. Um, 
outreach, I mean, just getting out there and um, talking to people and helping them see that others that look like them um, are either in the office, hopefully, that there's some diversity in the office, or that others that look like them have gone through this process and, and had some successes. Uh, we did a, a training at Sandia um, because they wanted specifically to encourage their women inventors to participate in the um, in the whole process. And so the the training that we provided was really not significantly different than the training that we do for any um, community of inventors to help them understand what is the tech transfer process, what is their role in it, what are the benefits for them. You know, all those things are are the same um, at for the first layer. What we did differently was it was women training. We used examples that were um, women inventors and women startups. The pictures we used in the slides were women and diverse colors um, because this was specifically women. Now, if, if we are actually very conscious of the imagery we use in our training and try to make it diverse um, so that it's not just all white. Um, we, we try to have a variety of different men, women, some that you may not be able to tell which one they are. And that's very purposeful in, in how we choose to, to represent those things. And then um, reaching out to some of those innovators in addition after some of that training of showing them this can be done and it's for you. Um, and if you participate, you will be taken seriously. But it's also an acknowledgement that a lot of women have schedule issues. They're innovators, they're entrepreneurs, but they're often still mothers um, and still have a lot of the um, the at-home responsibilities that the 1950s tradition you know, continues on. Um, I know I still have some of those. So uh, recognizing that they have time issues that might be unique to them. And so how you offer that training, when you offer the training, being very cognizant of that um, and trying not to make things an added burden for them. So those are all just additional thoughts that have to go into it. So Laura, as the podcast comes to a close, I wanted to ask you, I know you're the former board chair for the Autumn Foundation. You're also, as we've learned here during this podcast, the successful woman entrepreneur. Can you speak to the importance of supporting and celebrating innovative, creative, and enterprising women in tech transfer and the commercialization industry, both in the U.S. and around the world? Sure. Um, so one of the things that we often say in the first robotics world that uh, I also dedicate a lot of my energy and time to is see one, be one. Um, so if you see somebody that looks like you and they are doing something different um, than what you previously thought you could do and they are being successful at it, that has a tremendous impact. And so um, in the work in the foundation, when, when we started looking at diversity um, and also from, from a uh, perspective of, of working in tech transfer is just helping people see the possibilities of what they can do and encouraging them 
to move forward with that. And so the more women um, that we celebrate their successes, um, the easier it is for other innovators to see the path forward and how they got there and talking to those entrepreneurs to to get from them, you know, what what did they do? Um, you know, I'm I'm not a technology company. I'm I'm a consulting company. So my path forward is is quite different than what an entrepreneur who is developing a new medical device is going to need. But um, the more that they see these stories and they hear these uh, lessons learned on how they got there, the better. Now, at the same time, we need to be very careful about the fact that we still have low numbers in that, in that space. And so the same women keep getting called on to give of their time and give of their energy. And they are very giving. Most um, most entrepreneurs I know, men, women, black, white, they are very giving back to the community and want to help others be successful. But when you have minorities and when you have women underrepresented groups in general, they're underrepresented means there's few numbers. <laughs> so that means we keep calling on the same people. Um, we've got to expand that and, and we've got to maybe look for um, people that are still on the path up um, and what are, what are their, um, some of their challenges. And by giving them that exposure, help elevate them to the next level as well. So it's not just the superstars. We should also be looking for the ones that, that are trying to get there and help them get there. Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Well, that's all the time we have today for this special episode celebrating World Intellectual Property Day. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups. Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.